The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. That somewhat unfamiliar hymn spoke well of the truths we've been considering these recent weeks as we've been looking particularly at the Christian's future, the believer's future with a resurrected body in Christ dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth and have several aspects of things I still want to develop on this. Actually, just this past week, I finally resolved how I think this is going to end on Palm Sunday and Easter with uh, texts that I yet want to treat. Today I ask you to look at Psalm 16. I'm only going to read the second half approximately of Psalm 16. That's our main text for consideration, and I'll bring in a secondary text in the New Testament, which is uh, really more just to help us with a couple observations. Second Corinthians, the end of chapter 4, I'll also read that. First of all, from Psalm 16, David writing, Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Then this word from the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at 16 and on into chapter 5. Therefore we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven not built with human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
This is God's Word. A Christian writer of the previous generation, Joe Bailey from Philadelphia, told one time about leading a worship service at a nursing home where he was speaking to folks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and hope in the face of death. And Mr. Bailey said that that day he just had a small group gathered there, maybe 10, 15 people, most of them very infirm, many in wheelchairs. He said a lady in a wheelchair looked up at him as he was speaking about hope in death, and her eyes were pretty much brimming with tears, and and she broke in on him in his speaking, not even thinking that that was wrong to do. She said, I'm afraid to die. Well, Joe Bailey made a wise on-the-spot decision to let that be a ministry moment and not just go on and ignore the interruption. And he asked the audience of elderly folks, he said, how many of you here share this lady's fear? And most of the hands kind of went up tentatively, yes, I'm afraid too. And Joe Bailey said to these people, what if I could promise that I could take you from this nursing home to a beautiful spring-like place where you would be forever free from aches and pains, where you could walk and even run, hear and see and remember things as you haven't for many years now, where you would never again have loneliness or sorrow or illness. But in order to get you from here to there, I first would have to lead you through a very dark and threatening tunnel. How many of you would like to go with me? And once again, the hands mostly went up. Joe Bailey said to his audience that day, death, folks, is that dark tunnel. It's a fearsome-looking place. And when we stand at this end of it, we are naturally afraid looking into it. But Jesus Christ came out of that tunnel in order to take us back through it with Him to eternal life with God. As we've been dealing with these themes over past weeks and months, I don't know how it has affected you as we talk about things that are sometimes, in some cases, biblical doctrines, but issues of faith as well. I can assure you I've been able to stay grounded in reality and not get lost in the abstractions of doctrine over these months because in the course of those months, as happens for me all the time, I've had to preside at funerals and memorial services along the way. I'm not just a talking head up here who, who is giving you a lot of doctrine about life after death. I live with the people who lose their loved ones. I listen to them. I see what death does. I go to the funeral homes, as you do, of course, too. And I see what a devastating intruder and robber and marauder and terrorist death is. As it comes into our homes and takes away the breathing, loving people that we care about. One day we're talking to them and they to us, and one day they can take our hand and grip it. And the next day, that same person can't say anything back to us, and 
Their hand can't grip ours. They've turned into a cold and motionless stranger. I remember the first time I ever saw a dead body. The mother of a casual playmate of mine about 10 houses down the street died, I think, in her 40s. She seemed like an older person to me. Today, she'd seem very young to me. My dad knew the husband and was going to the funeral home, and because I knew the son, I went with my dad. I was 11. And dad was giving his condolences as we stood at the casket. I have no idea what my father said because the minute we walked in there, I'd never seen a a dead person. And, And I just stared. Motionless. Eyes closed. I thought, surely she's going to breathe. Aren't her eyes going to open? I I don't know what I expected, but I stood there expecting something to happen. And of course, nothing happened. She was dead. Today, I ask you to consider the subject of the possession of biblical confidence in the face of physical death. The raw reality is, of course, that death cancels the pulsing life of a human being in a physical body. No medical science can go beyond a certain point. There's the point where the doctor says, we can't do anything. And there's nothing he can do or she can do but put her signature on the death certificate. And yet Jesus Christ promises us that bodily resurrection gives us a new life in a new body, a body that will allow us to surpass and experience the sweetest joys that we've ever known on this earth in these bodies. Christianity, you see, never says your soul is important, but your body isn't. Actually, there was someone who said that, very famous philosopher of a whole school of philosophy. His name was Plato. He said souls are very important. Bodies aren't. Bodies are just prison houses that souls live in, and and you should be glad when you can fly away from it. That was Plato, not Jesus. The Scripture teaches that human beings are made in the image of God as a unity of soul and body. And while death temporarily separates your soul from this physical body, the power of God plans to and has the ability to reunite your soul with an entirely new body when Christ returns to history. John 5 says all those who are in the tomb are going to hear the voice of that coming Savior and come out. The gospel claim is that no bodies are ever annihilated. We don't just disappear as bodies forever. The ultimate consequence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for God's power to reconstitute that unique bundle of genetic and character and personality codes that make you who you are. He will remake it again, and you'll be whole again. In fact, you'll be whole for the very first time because you're not whole people right now, not completely. My first observation today is to say this. Christian hope looks for body and soul to be glorified together. God doesn't despise our physical natures. How could he do so? He made us in these bodies. The Scripture has places where the the psalmist and others marvel. They say, how fearfully and wonderfully I am made. 
Oh God, you knew me in my mother's womb. I consider that and it's fantastic. God created fingers. God created eyes. God created these bodies of ours to be able to speak language and form relationships and have sexuality and to be able to work hard and to express art and music and play instruments and, yes, even do Olympic snowboarding. God must love those things. He's delighted when His creatures experience bodily delights that are within His will. But yet, although our flesh is going to deteriorate, and it does with depressing steadiness throughout life, and we know it's going to end up as dust in one form or another again, we can say God designed our bodies. God designed maleness and femaleness. What a wonder He did in the physicality of life. And He is not going to have those bodies completely disappear. We will not be ghosts. We will not be angels. The Scripture says we will be embodied once again in the resurrection. Christianity values embodied people living in the presence of God. You know, did you ever think about how much time and attention and billions and trillions of dollars are spent on the human body, on what it looks like, on what it wears, on making it look as good as you can make it look. All the industries that are out there to improve our bodies, to fix them up, there isn't a single one of you that didn't do something today to make yourself look as good as you could to come to church. You know, I don't put on makeup or anything like that, but I I did a little work. It's pretty impossible to make it do very much. But we all try to make ourselves look as good as we can. And, And we exercise and maybe try to eat right things and maybe go to the plastic surgeon or whatever. And we have all these ideals that we think our bodies should project and conform to. I remember as a boy... I shouldn't admit that as a 12 or 13-year-old boy, I knew these things. But in the early 60s, it seemed to me in America that the ideals of feminine beauty, okay, that were held up by Hollywood and other whoever makes these decisions, I can think of two names that, that stood real high, Marilyn Monroe and Brigitte Bardot. How many of you remember Brigitte? They were supposedly the most alluring and beautiful women in the world in the early 1960s. Where are they now? You probably know that Marilyn died at age 36 a long time ago, tragically. I don't want to malign an individual in this pulpit, but if you've seen a picture of Ms. Bardot in her late 70s recently, you understand why the casting directors have lost her phone number. And don't call her anymore. The beauty has faded. The beauty has faded. They're no longer the pattern. They've got to have somebody new all the time whose body is the new ideal. But you see, the pattern for the Christian's final body is not some young, smirking model sashaying down the runway of a French fashion show. It's not the latest ingenue actress in the latest film. It's not the the muscular superhero Your body eventually, in eternity, is going to conform to one glorious prototype, 
the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body that you have, a spiritual body it's called, and everybody says, oh, it's spiritual. That means it isn't real. No, sir, that means it's really real. That means what you have now isn't completely real. That one will be acutely real. And your physical, merely physical predecessor body will seem like nothing in comparison. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 36, the body that is sown in the ground, he meant like a seed put in the ground, the body you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, listen, I'm going to restate that verse. Scripture is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 36, that the way to have a perfect body is not to go to the gym, the the plastic surgeon, or the beauty salon. The way to get a perfect body is this. Go to the cemetery and then go to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let him work his miracle. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies to become like his glorious body. The difference between lowly and glorious is a miracle. And it's a miracle of God that isn't completely explained as to how and wherefore, but God has the power to do it. Now, you say, I haven't talked about Psalm 16 yet. Well, all that was introduction, but still in this first point, when I say Christian hope looks for body and soul to be glorified together, I want you to see the confidence of this that David had facing even physical death here in Psalm 16. The, the Bible believes in other places that Psalm 16 was plain and simply a prediction of the resurrection of Christ. How do we know that? Well, there are two places in the book of Acts. One is Acts 2.29. When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he referred back to Psalm 16 in a critical reference. And he said, folks, he was trying to convince them of the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, look, I want to tell you, David, our great ancestor, died. His tomb's right down the road over there. You could almost see it from where Peter was. David's died. We assume his dust is in that tomb. However, you'll remember, and Jewish people did remember this, Psalm 16, that David said, you will not abandon me to the grave nor let your Holy One see decay. Peter said, David wrote this in prediction of Christ and now this has been fulfilled. By the way, the fact that your English Bible has Holy One, capital H, capital O, is because of those references in Acts. You see, the Hebrew language doesn't have capital letters and small letters. It's put there as an interpretive device to say this is talking about Christ, the ultimate Holy One. This is a prediction of Christ. And Paul actually made a similar reference in Acts 13, 36 again. So twice the New Testament looked back and said David was predicting the resurrection of Christ. But at the same time, David was speaking out of his own confidence as a believer. And he was saying, look, I weigh my blessings from God despite difficulties, despite trials, despite enemies. I've got all kinds of people against me, but yet I trust my Lord, and nobody can shake me in the midst of that trust. And in fact, God is the great reality of all realities, and he will not let me go. And David was saying, I am so confident of that that even in the dimly seen future beyond this grave or even in the grave and beyond it, God won't let me go. That's what this amounts to. 
One modern commentator was writing about the 16th Psalm, and he, he said this, quote, The boldness of David saying, You will not abandon me to the grave, almost leaves a reader breathless. For how can one man see generations of people dying all around him and still say, God will not let death ruin me? Well, David wasn't stupid. He knew his physical body was going to die. And yet he was saying, the body of a man called David. This expression of whoever David is in history and time and space and eternity is going to survive. I am confident. How God is going to do it, I don't know. But the God who will accomplish this is my God. He's the true God. He's the powerful God. And that's enough for me. That was David's confidence. And it was a shining confidence. This this text here in Psalm 16 stands alongside one I've mentioned in Job 19.25. I think those are, are the two bright searchlight beams of resurrection hope. If you think of the Old Testament as having headlights on the subject of resurrection hope, Psalm 16 and Job 19 are those two headlights in my mind. Well, now building on that, building on this resurrection confidence that David expressed, I tell you secondly, a little bit of a strange-sounding point. Our glorified bodies do not depend on a reassembly of present-day molecules. Some people have always fallen over this. They think when the Bible talks about the resurrection of the body, that means the exact molecules, the exact particles, the exact atoms of a body somehow have to be revived and brought back. Listen, you've all studied enough biology in school. I don't care. You don't have to go too high in the grades without getting this science. When they teach you that all cells in your body are constantly being replaced, don't they? Cells in my hand, cells in my heart, my aorta, cells in my foot are constantly dying, and new cells are replacing them. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but I hear different estimates somewhere that would say probably the outside limit would be about seven years, that every seven years all your cells have replaced themselves. Now, this gave me an interesting thought this week about your knowledge of me as your pastor. I'm in my 16th year in this church. Seven years, you had one of me. Then for another seven years, you had another one. You're on the third pastor. Same guy with the same name, same face. I don't know why. I keep getting these different bodies, but everyone is a little bit worse than the one before. I, can't, I wish somebody could work on that. But I'm still me. I'm still me, despite all the cells being replaced. And there's at least an analogy there to the concept that God, in making our resurrection bodies, doesn't need the present-day moment collection of cells in order to remake me. And yet there are ignorant people who would poke fun or mockery at the resurrection of the body. And they say, oh, well, how ridiculous, this stupid Christian idea of resurrection. How do they think people killed in Hiroshima who were incinerated? by a nuclear blast. How are they going to be resurrected? How are sailors, hundreds and thousands of them over the centuries whose atoms, if there are even atoms left, are at the bottom of the sea disintegrated? How are they going to be resurrected? Listen, don't sell God short. He invented your DNA chain. He wrote its code. 
He doesn't depend on getting the collection of your bones out of a box somewhere so that he can connect your knee bone to your thigh bone again. That's not what it's about. Put away that crass literalistic idea. Resurrection does not require the atoms that you have now. Christianity is a greater thing than that, and it's hope. It's saying that God, who created us in the first place, can certainly create us once again. And we get asked practical questions. Can a Christian be cremated? We say, why not? There's certainly no biblical principle that stands in the way of that. There are some people who might have scruples about that or not prefer that. That's fine. If you want to choose burial, choose burial. Choose cremation. You're not making a choice one way or the other that's going to affect the resurrection of the body. God, who created the cosmos out of nothing except the spoken word of his power, can remake human beings as he rewrites that DNA code because he knows it completely. You know how we can actually forget people who are precious to us? My great-grandfather died when I was eight. He was a Mennonite farmer, so I'm only aware of one picture, uh, and it's not even good. It's a blurry black and white picture that was ever taken. And that's all I have is sort of a blurry image of my great-grandfather, this particular grandfather. He died in the mid-1950s. I can't really remember him. Is God's memory of you going to fade away like that? Of course not. He knew you in your mother's womb. He knit you together. He knew the code that made you who you are. The Scripture says, as his child in Christ, you are the apple of his eye. Do you really think it's too much for the Creator who knew you that way to know the template for everything that will make you distinctively you again? He can use that template, and he will, with unerring skill at the final resurrection day. He doesn't depend on how many fragments of you are left laying around for raw material. Third and finally today, Psalm 16 and 2 Corinthians, and I'm bringing that in for a moment, give us ample evidence of the confidence that believers can have. Believers in Christ can and should face death in the same confidence that took Jesus to his cross. Remember how confident he was? He knew everything he was facing. Not just that he would die, but that he would die horribly, painfully, in agony. And he went to it with confidence. You see, Psalm 16 wasn't just predicting the resurrection of Jesus. It was something that David spoke, and we can learn to speak as our own affirmation. We can say, as those who belong to Christ, as his reborn children with the confident hope of eternity in our hearts, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, because my body will also rest secure. Not this mass of flesh, but who I am. All of me will rest secure, for you, God, will not abandon me to the grave. That won't be the end of me. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. What an affirmation. Can you make that affirmation as a Christian in Jesus Christ today? 
Can you make the kind of affirmation Paul made in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5? Here's the old man Paul opening up his heart. He absolutely bears his soul. I want to preach 2 Corinthians in my ministry to you. It won't be the next book, but I hope to get there. Because I just love the way this man is so honest. He just opens it up and says, here I am. I've had all this life, all this hardship, all this persecution. I've been sick, and I am now, and I'm in prison. And then he writes, 2 Corinthians 4.16, We do not lose heart. For while outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. He says that resurrection isn't just something out there in the future. It's going on right now. The Holy Spirit has made me a new man in Jesus Christ. And further on in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, he tells of a, something that arises from him like a groaning, a great longing when he says, I long, I groan to be clothed with my heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal, this stuff, this right here, what is mortal, this body, may be swallowed up by life. Now, the New Testament didn't capitalize it, but if I had that freedom, I would capitalize that word L-I-F-E. This body, living in this fading, deteriorating, decaying form of life, will be swallowed up by capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. And so Paul then said that triumphant thing in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, not just me, every Christian, he said. We are confident. And we would prefer to be away from this body and home with the Lord. What was he, suicidal? Somebody says, what, you want to commit suicide? No, sir, don't be ridiculous. This was a man who was so saturated with the satisfaction of belonging to Christ that he wanted the end goal to be realized. God gave us these physical bodies. He intends that we use them and enjoy them in ways conforming with His Word and and will. God takes delight in the Winter Olympics, I would assume. Just look at all those athletes in their colorful costumes, their lean bodies, their strong bodies, their fast bodies. They're so agile. But as you watch them, maybe this will ruin the Olympics for you. But as you watch them, stop and think. Every one of them is going to be motionless someday in a casket. Every one of them is going to die unless Christ comes first. And what would they have engraved for their life's achievement on their tombstone? The most fortunate, uppermost few percentile of them will be able to say, Oh, I won five Olympic medals. I won two Olympic medals. I'm the best in the world. Guess what? In one century or less, no one will know their name. Wouldn't you rather have on your tombstone or your epitaph? I am confident. Because of Christ who rose and who claimed me as his own, my body rests secure He will not abandon me to the grave. Wouldn't you rather have on your stone for me to live as Christ and to die is only gain? One of my great heroes, as you would expect, is a minister. 
He was a Welshman who exercised his ministry in London, primarily Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great English-speaking preachers of the 20th century. You ever get a chance to hear Lloyd-Jones on an old tape somewhere, take the opportunity and listen. This man was a medical doctor. He was an assistant to the Queen's own physician and could have easily risen to that position himself if he had stayed in medicine. But he didn't. He was called to the ministry. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones, after a long life in ministry, lay dying in the winter of 1981. He was a doctor, and so he knew exactly what was wrong with him and pretty much could diagnose about how long he would last. And when his doctor came in and said, I want you to take more antibiotics for your congested lungs, he said, no, that's enough. Don't need that anymore. And he said to folks who came to visit him in the last week, one, one friend went away and remembered that Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, Brother, pray that I enter heaven in the full sail of faith. I love that. I picture the clipper ship. Every sail stretched wide, all the canvas for the wind of glory to take him home. On February 26, 1981, Lloyd-Jones had lost the ability to speak anymore, but he took a piece of paper and wrote a little note to his wife. That's the last thing he ever wrote. He said, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. And his daughter read for him a text for the day from their daily Bible reading, which included 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there was victory. Folks, I see so much hopelessness. I see people who are at the funeral home and they're clinging to the body they've lost, and it's right to be sad, it's right to grieve, of course. But if that's all you have, you have nothing. Only by trusting Christ who died and rose for you can you have the unshakable confidence that David had, that Paul had, that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had to be secure in the embrace of Jesus Christ and be confident that beyond the grave, God has a body prepared for you. And our Father, we don't expect we will be supermen as we face our funerals, our death, our end time. And we will wail and we will cry with Others, when we lose those close to us, you guard those tears and you respect them. But, Father, beneath it, may we be on something solid, a rock of confidence that in Christ no grave can defeat us. Thank you for Jesus who makes that true. Amen.